who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Indeed, Lord, we thank you for these words of assurance in you and how these words of assurance spoke to the Corinthians so long ago. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to speak to us, even through these very specific circumstances that they were in. Would you speak right into our circumstances today? Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us manna for our journey? And would you give us insight into how you would have us live? Uh, For your glory's sake, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, here we are. We're already in chapter 10. Can you believe it? Because I've been going so fast. Um, so we're at chapter 10, and we're looking, um, we're still in this section, if you recall, that has to do with food sacrifice to idols. And um, if you remember, why, why is this issue a problem in Corinth? Why, why would, you know, geopolitically, or um, even culturally what's going on in Corinth that would cause these new Christians to sort of be tempted to go to temples, um, pagan temples, um, to participate in their feasts. Any thoughts? Why would they be tempted to do that? You said that was the only place they could get food. I mean, meat sometimes. Yeah, sometimes if you were were poor on the poorer end of, of things, that'd be your protein, right? And you'd go there for cheap meat if you didn't have any animals that you were raising yourself. Um, and you also, and then also the other thing is socially, in that day and age, remember that Corinth is, it's a new colony. It had been rebuilt. If you recall, it had been destroyed by the Romans and then rebuilt. Um, and all of the people there were not necessarily landed. They, there were a lot of merchants in class, business classes. And so in all of those business classes, they had guilds, just like, for example, the Mason, where it was social, where it was a trade guild, where it allowed them to get a leg up kind of in their trade through these social engagements. And so in order to continue to be a part of some of these guilds that were crucial to them professionally and economically, they would then also um, be expected socially to appear at the restaurant in town, which was the pagan temple, you know, the club. They had to be there to be able to um, engage and continue those social relationships and continue business as usual. Um, so that was part of it. Those were some of the practical concerns. Um, what, what spiritually do you think was going on, or do you remember was going on with the Corinthians that they felt like this was okay? There were some things that they felt like, well, that's just okay. And cert- a certain group of them said, well, we can do this, of course. Do you remember why? And it goes back to chapter 8. If you look at chapter 8, that's the beginning of this section where Paul is talking about this food sacrifice to idols. Some within the group, remember, have knowledge. This special knowledge. And Do you remember what that special knowledge, there's a Greek word for that special knowledge. Do you remember what it is? Gnosis and Gnosticism. Yeah, Gnosis is the word for the knowledge, and Gnosticism is the system of thought. So there were some who were so spiritual and so knowledgeable spiritually. <coughs> quote, quote, unquote, in their own minds. (laughs) That they knew, well, these pagan gods are nothing compared to God Almighty. They're not gods. There's only one God, one Lord, Jesus Christ. And so they said, well, we can can partake of this because it's like nothing nothing wrong with it. There's nothing. um, They're not real. So we can partake of it. We have this special knowledge. And there was, remember that this special knowledge affected several chapters prior to chapter 8. Remember that this special knowledge and this system of special knowledge, this sort of mysticism that was both Christian and non-Christian. So Gnosticism was a thought system, a belief system that was pagan. And then some 
Christians tried to, who weren't very strong Christians, tried to mix Gnostic beliefs with Christian beliefs. And so there was a lot of Gnosticism that seeped into the early churches. And Paul, and especially in Corinth, and so Paul is specifically trying to counter this idea of special knowledge that they would have. And do you remember one of the other characteristics of Gnosticism? It has to do with matter and stuff. Matter doesn't matter. Matter does yeah, they would say matter doesn't matter. <coughs> But in contrast, the Christian witness and the Judeo-Christian witness, of course, when we read Genesis, the Lord created the sun and the moon and the stars, and it was good. The matter, the stuff of this world, is seen by God as being good, albeit fallen now, after the fallen, broken, tainted by sin and evil, yet still matter matters to God. The stuff of this world is important. And when we look at the end of all things, when we look at Revelation, we see that our fate is not to be disembodied souls on a cloud, right? Our fate is that our destiny is to be taken up with the renewal of all creation. God will destroy and then remake all of creation. And heaven will descend to earth and God will dwell in our midst eternally on a new earth that will be perfect even as we will be raised with bodies that are um, unsinful, will be totally without sin at that day. I know. I've got to say it probably every week just to remind myself how how great it will be. So this Gnostic belief was tearing them away from um, the Judeo-Christian viewpoint about matter. And it was telling them, they would say, what matter doesn't matter. What you do in your body doesn't matter. And so remember that that would lead to two extremes, either to, what were the two extremes, do you remember? And Paul has countered both extremes in chapter 6 and 7. Sexual sin. Sexual sin. And I would say even anything goes. I could do whatever I want with my body. And I think of this, well, I'm going to give a food example in just a minute. Versus sexual sin versus what was the other extreme? Even when you're married, you don't have the sin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that you had to be celibate to a fault even though you were married. That you had to, total abstinence was the only way forward for everyone, even if you were married. Obviously, we say that about singleness. But so, so there's this idea of this extreme. Do you remember the word for it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to try to spell it. I mix it up with aesthetics. So there was this extreme aestheticism, just this totally disinfected view of life. You have to completely expunge any kind of physical desire, whether it be for food or for, um, for sexual relations or for whatever. Not, it was all bad and you had to flee as far from it. And you see this today even in some of the monastic, you saw it a lot, you see it a lot in the monastic tradition throughout the Christian church, kind of this image of wearing the hair shirt. Um, I'm going to wear the hair shirt to punish my body um, and to punish my soul by punishing my body, and then I'll be holy. That's not what God tells us in Scripture. So, um, so these two extremes, it was all or nothing. Anything goes or nothing goes, I would say. Yeah, Deborah. Yeah. Some of the, um, I don't want to say country churches, but some of the churches not in a, a city situation, there are a lot of ministers that think that way. You know, nothing. Um, yeah. Don't drink, don't smoke, and don't go with people who do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, I remember, my frustration. I loved going to Wheaton College, but my frustration when I got there, I had been a dancer and didn't think there was anything. You know, it didn't. I didn't feel like I was being sexually untoward because I loved ballet and tap and jazz and social dancing. And but social dancing was forbidden Absolutely. there because there. I think because I think because there was this practice on the board. Well, yeah, of that is so, yeah. uh, I don't want to call anyone out, but when we got into the Episcopal Church <laughs> and the minister had wine, one got beer, we got to I found my I know. Yeah, no, I don't. <laughs> Oh, my mother would have a fit. (laughs) 
one of the things I've noticed too about the South, you tell me if this is true or not, but I've noticed in, especially in Episcopalian circles, unfortunately, unfortunately, sometimes the defining characteristic for Episcopalians in the Southern milieu where there are so many churches and so many people do go to church and are faithful about going to church, there's this idea of, well, we're the ones who are allowed to drink. (laughs) <laughs> which I think there's so much more about us than just that. You know, why does that have to be our defining characteristic and juxtaposition to other Christians? And but I I've heard that mentality. And I was yeah. going out, there was a Methodist church across the street, and they could drink, but we couldn't drink. Yeah, we yeah. could party, and we could, yeah. you know, that time. So it's not just the opinion. Makes you wonder if you didn't want to be a Methodist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They had more fun, right? Yeah. Well, so I would see an analogy for this. I'm going to take an analogy, kind of startling, from eating disorders. So the aesthetic, you know, if asceticism is to an anything goes mentality, as anorexia is to bulimia. Exactly. Right. I'll starve myself versus I'm going to eat everything in sight, and then, right? Ugh. I know, sorry to do that. But it makes it stark in contrast. So these were some of the issues. These were kind of the mentalities that were plaguing the Corinthians. And Paul is trying to correct their thinking. Um, Not so much concerned about their behavior. He is. But he's more concerned about the misthought behind their behavior and the disbelief. And so he's advocating now back to this issue. um, This is the last section. This chapter on food sacrifice to idols. And so he's saying that um, basically the freedom of those who seem to have this special knowledge about idols, so the, special no- the content of the special knowledge is idols are nothing, not gods. That special knowledge he's correcting, I know you, you probably can't see the orange, Um, So the special knowledge was that idols are nothing. They're not gods. And he was saying, yes, you're right. There's one God and one Lord Jesus Christ. He said that in chapter 8. But some people aren't totally sure about that yet. Some people, some Christians in your midst, some of your brothers and sisters are still weak in their belief about that. And so why are you going to go forward with your freedom to do this, to eat the meat, sacrifice to idols in the temple, when it's going to destroy their faith. Because if they follow your example and go ahead and do it, then they're going to be actually worshiping other gods because they really believe that the other gods exist Mm -hmm. because they're still so tied in with that pagan culture and that pagan mentality. And so Paul has said in chapter 8 that the freedom of the strong could cause the weak to stumble. And so therefore, they should not go to the temple and eat food sacrificed to idols. And then we're going to see in chapter 9 last week, we saw that um, Paul gives this whole long example of himself, himself as an apostle. And as apostle, he's forgone uh, the right to have them pay him. And he's saying, I'm doing this because, um, because I want more people to be saved. I'm thinking of other people. I'm thinking I want not only to offer the gospel to people, but I want to offer the gospel to people free of charge so that both the content of the message and then the means by which the message is proclaimed freely, without cost to them, will help them to believe it. And so he's using that as an example to say, I, Paul, have foregone my rights as an apostle. Therefore, shouldn't you also, even though you have the right to go to the temple if you want to, if you have the special knowledge and you're a Christian and you only believe in God and Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, you think you can go, but forego that right to go. Why? Because of your brother, because of others, out of love for others, so that others might be strengthened in their walk with Christ, and so that those who are not believers would come to know Christ. Okay? Any thoughts about that before we dig into chapter 10, which also is about food sacrificed to idols in, te- in the temples? He's going to keep arguing for them. Okay. So beginning at chapter 10, verse 1. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. 
for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Do you hear here that there are Old Testament examples that Paul is using? And he's going to use them um, specifically to warn them against participating in this temple worship, to warn them against idolatry or even being in the same place where idolatry is happening. And so we're going to do a little bit of Bible trivia. We're going to go back and forth a little bit. So make sure you keep your hand or put a paper in um, 1 Corinthians 10 so you can get back. But what do you think? Do you hear him saying, all were baptized into Moses? What do you recall from the Old Testament experience of the Israelites? What do you think that means? There's a certain event that that's alluding to. Yeah, Mary? No. Oh, sorry. I thought you were ready to keep me around. <laughs> no, sorry. No, no. <laughs> Wasn't there a cloud that they, when he said um, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud? Yeah. In the sea. Moses followed a cloud, didn't it? Yeah. In the wilderness, in the they the wilderness. followed a cloud. And even, if you turn back to Exodus 13, Exodus is easy to find because it's the second book in the Bible, so you can. Um, if you turn back to Exodus um, 13, you'll see uh, there's this um, beginning of verse 17. You'll see that when Pharaoh let the people go, does someone want to read? Um, let's see. Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13, verses um, 17 through 22. The crossing of the sea. Sure. Uh, 13, 17 through 22. It's just before the crossing of the sea. Or I can read if someone doesn't want to read. Okay. I'll read. Okay. All right. You want to share it, Dorothy? Why don't you do part of it and then Trudy will pick up. Oh, okay. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Great. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, and they might travel by day and by night, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of night by fire by night did not depart from before the people. Um, have you ever been up at the top of a mountain that's covered in clouds? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and isn't it moist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it is almost like a baptism in the cloud, when you're in the cloud. Mm-hmm. And he did talk about so Paul is alluding back to this time when the Israelites followed the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, especially at this beginning of their journey. He's highlighting the beginning of their journey. Um, we're not going to read the bit about the crossing of the Red Sea, but you remember he led them through, um, led them right up to the Red Sea, and the Egyptians were pursuing. Moses prayed and called upon the Lord, and the Lord parted the sea, and the Israelites got to go all the way through the sea. And then when they were on the other side, then, um, then the, Moses prayed again. And the Lord, um, as the Egyptians, the Egyptian army was already in the, in the place where the sea was, then the waters came back over the heads of the Egyptian army, and the army was drowned. And so we see in that salvation of the people of Israel, they were saved from being destroyed by the pursuing Egyptian army. And they were brought out of slavery in Egypt into eventually the promised land, but there were going, there was um, 40 years of wandering before they got there. So this beginning, this is seeing the exodus and the bringing them out of Egypt and bringing them through the Red Sea, that was seen as being the beginning of the nation of the people of Israel, even though it began all the way back with Father Abraham, who is the fa- you know grandfather of Jacob, who's the father of the 12 tribes. Um, still, this constituted their forming as a people of their own, as a nation about to stand on their own two legs. 
as God's nation um, for the ancient world. So, so isn't it interesting that Paul, what Christian image does Paul use um, to talk about this walking through the Red Sea? Again, I think of the moisture being in a cloud, but I also think if you've ever walked past a lot of water and you just kind of get, I just imagine them walking past a wall of water and getting spit at a little bit. You know, they weren't drowned, but they probably got a little damp walking through there. <laughs> What does Paul liken it to? A baptism. Baptism, yeah. Did you notice um, a couple weeks ago at the public baptism at 9 o'clock, Andrew takes, he's done this before, I've seen him do this, take the water in the bowl after the babies have been baptized, and he'll just start spraying it on all the kids who are sitting on the floor. They're, it's such a dad thing to do, isn't it? Or big brother thing to do. And he's saying, remember your baptism, remember your baptism, remember your baptism. And um, there's something about that, not having been baptized as, uh, within my memory, being baptized as an infant, but coming to faith as a teenager, it was really helpful for me to be on the diving team. I think I've said this here before, but it was helpful because I, it's su- such a physical movement. You know, you jump up in the air, and I thought about it too much, which got me dizzy, I think. You jump up in the air and try to get as high up as you can so that you can go as deep as you can in the water. And just the direction, you know, going as high, high, high as you can, and then as deep, deep, deep as you can, and going all the way down, and then struggling to come back up for air. You know, just that down, 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 and up, up, up motion. is That's the motion of our baptism, is that even though we weren't, most of us, submerged, or some of us maybe were submerged in a tank, even though we weren't immersed in water, still there's this idea of death and new life with baptism. We've been baptized into Jesus' death. His death is for us, and then we're raised to new life um, you know, as we, as ones who have been baptized. So um, he's talking about this. He's likening their baptism to the Old Testament, um, those Old Testament uh, people, the Old Testament people of God who had been baptized through the cloud and through the sea. But then he's going to go on, what other analogy does he use? What other example of how the Old Testament people of God is similar to the New Testament people of God? Not only is he likening baptism, but he's also the food, the food, food and drink. What does that make him think of? <coughs> Isn't that our other sacrament? Yeah. Right? We eat spiritual food and we drink spiritual drink when we come together at the Lord's table. And that what's the spiritual food and the spiritual drink for the people of Israel when they wandered in the wilderness? Manna. Manna and quail. That's right. They had, they had manna. They got, the Lord gave them bread because they were grumbling. And you see that in Exodus 17. They, they were hungry and they said, He brought us out to die. And he, he didn't bring them out to die, but he gave them he gave them bread and he gave them water from the rock. Um, so we see the bread, and actually the bread's in chapter 16, and then the water from the rock is in chapter 17. Um, and the food, the manna followed them all throughout their wilderness journey. And the rock we see in the Old Testament appears at the beginning of their journey in Exodus 17, but then it also appears again at the end of their journey in Numbers 20. And so the later, later on, the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, surmised that this rock, this somehow this miraculous well of water that sprang up in the desert, this rock that was filled with water, somehow it followed them <laughs> wherever they went. Just like the cloud led them and the, fire, and the pillar of fire led them at night, they, they believed that this rock was following them around. So that they, clearly they had water every day, just like they had bread every day. But they were in the des- desert. And so um, they see all this provision of water as being um, from, directly from God himself. Um, any thoughts or questions about that? Well, it teaches them that they can't depend on them themselves, that they yeah. are dependent on, on yeah. God and Jesus. Yeah, and that's what a lot of the wilderness wanderings are about. And I think about that a lot in asking myself, maybe a good question always to ask yourself is, am I in the wilderness right now? Am I not in the wilderness, Lord? And when I've been in the wilderness, what has that looked like in my life? When I look back at my life, when were times when I was truly in the wilderness? And Lord, how did you provide for me in the midst of that place? And it, it, 
fuels thanksgiving in our hearts. It fuels gratitude and it fuels trust. I think gratitude then fuels trust for today. Because today sometimes feels more like a wilderness than maybe it is, or more like a wilderness than days of um, real wilderness living. And so remembering the tenderness of the Lord, even when we're living in a place where we're not completely dependent upon him. You know, thinking about the promised land, they entered into the promised land and their problems got worse because they they felt like they were self-sufficient and didn't need God. And that's always when we get into trouble, isn't it? So, um, but how beautiful to have this spiritual food and spiritual drink likened to Christian spiritual food and drink in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And he's going to elaborate on that later. But this rock, he says, Paul says, how interesting, he interprets the rock as being Jesus Christ himself. The rock was a common name for God in, in Deuteronomy. Um, they understood the rock was God himself following them, um, providing for them. And the rock was a name for God. And so he's saying, you know, that Jesus Christ was with them even before he was incarnate. But the whole point of this whole example in chapter 10 is that um, though they were there, though they had been uh, made into the people of God, they, they died in the wilderness. They experienced God's judgment. And they did not see, the first generation did not see the promised land because of their disobedience and their grumbling. Does that make you worry? Because sometimes that makes me, hearing thoughts like that makes me worry a little bit like, oh no, can a Christian lose her salvation? Can we lose our salvation? And the answer is no. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. You know, that we have that assurance of our salvation being secure. Um, but we also look at our lives and say, see and say, um, how, does, how does the gospel work itself out in my life? And that's that tie-in between faith and works. And that, um, that, that if I really do believe in Jesus Christ, I couldn't go and worship some other god, you know, the way the Corinthians were doing. And so he's strongly urging them, strongly warning them and saying, Beware, maybe you're not actually Christians. Just like maybe those Israelites weren't actually ready to be part of the people of God. Um, they'd received, but they, um, they denied um, the lordship of God in order to worship other gods. And they grumbled against him. Um, and they were judged for it. So it is a sober warning, um, even while we still can put our trust in that blessed assurance. Even the asking the question, am I saved? Um, if you've already received Jesus know the answer Um, and then asking for the fruits of that salvation to be played out in our lives is something we can do again and again that prayer Lord would you make it manifest in my life would you show me the sign that you're at work in my life I want to see it and I want to see it again and again and he's so faithful at doing that work of making that manifest for us any thoughts about that is that where your mind went when you heard this passage or am I the only one that goes there (laughs) Well, I think all of us go there at certain points. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just a natural human thing to doubt or yeah. even though we shouldn't. Yes. It's, yeah. it's hard not to sometimes. Yeah, and to wonder. It's hard to be human. <laughs> so hard to be human. And, and we compare ourselves with other people, don't we? And we say, well, look at her. She's this kind of Christian or this, this, this. And, and, um, and, And the Lord does not want that to be a discouragement to us. He works through each one of us in different ways. But asking him, Lord, show me your work in me. Show me, as the Calvinists say, those signs of regeneration in my heart. And and I will, I'll know. (laughs) I'll know for sure. But But there is that blessed assurance. Once saved, we cannot be lost. And I remember that being deeply comforting to me, always in thinking, because the problem is we sin as Christians. And so when we sin, we think, oh, have I lost it? Have I lost my salvation because I sin? And again, the witness, we see it even in our liturgy, in coming again to the Lord in repentance. Every week we're saying, no, I haven't lost it. No, he's always uh, welcoming me back. And that welcome from God himself, that grace, the anticipation of that grace is what gives me the courage to get on my knees again this week. And also, yeah. the fact that when you do something that you feel like is sinful that you've done, yeah. that is, to me, the acknowledgement that, yes, you're still in His grace because 
he's brought it up to you, you know, that was not a kind thing to say or that yeah. was not something, you know, it, it's, yeah. it's the Holy Spirit inside of you kind of convicting you and that's a good sign. Yeah, it really it's is. It's when that... Even though it hurts. <laughs> even though it hurts, then you're like, oh, yeah. no. Yeah, yeah, because then you have the opportunity to say, Lord, did it again. There, there I go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank you, Gordon. Um, so let's keep reading verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written... The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Is that saying um, God never gives you any more than you can take? Mm-hmm. Basically. Is that a scripture, or is that just somebody said that from scripture? That somebody said that from scripture. Actually, paraphrasing from this verse. Okay. okay. Yeah. But that's. But you've heard that passed yeah. around. Yeah. But but I think sometimes that very help, people mean to be helpful when they say that, but it's not actually helpful, is it? Because you're especially when someone says God never gives you more than you can take. You're sitting there thinking, I'm already. I'm already overwhelmed. I already can't take it. Sometimes when you're having problems, though, and you think that, you think, Lord, is that really true? (laughs) Is that really true? Are you really not? I actually think he does give us more than we can take so that we're on our knees all the time. I think he almost always gives us more than we can take. But that keeps us on our knees. Um, And I think that's different than temptation, right? The temptation to sin is different than being overwhelmed with Whatever's on our plate, or overwhelmed by emotions, overwhelmed by busyness, overwhelmed sickness and commitments, problems yeah. and stuff like that, family situations. Yeah, yeah. I think, please, Lord, this is enough. Yes, Uncle, and yeah. but I think that us crying, Uncle, I, is that terrible? That I do think He gets us to the point where we will cry, Uncle, because then we're crying out to Him, and we then we're in the wilderness. Then we're saying. I've got nothing else. You're all I've got. And you got help me right now. And I think I think that is actually one of the places where he works the most. That's that theology of the cross that we stand by and believe in. Just that God is at work in those times where it seems like everything's gone wrong almost more than he is in the times when all's hunky-dory. You know, we see the victory at the end and we see the shiny, happy glory but it's really during the dark moments that God is bringing about, um, bringing about something far better than we could ask or imagine. And that's that idea of you know the three days of of Jesus being in the tomb. You know why do we call Good Friday good? Well, because on that darkest day, God has worked out our salvation. God has forgiven us our sins. And um, and no, it's not effective without that rising from the dead and the glory. Of Sunday morning, but that Sunday morning glory um, is almost after everything's happened. And so looking at that in other people, we look at other people and we see the glory or we see maybe the glory they want to show us and we think that all is well with them. And when we're in our moment of the cross, it's terrible. And we think, God, why can't you let me be like them and have what they have? And you're working in their life. And not only that, they're somehow spiritually better than I am. We start comparing and saying, oh, this is my lesser than, greater than sign, right? Saying, oh, I'm <laughs> great, I'm greater than you, or oh, I'm lesser than you, woe is me. No, it's always an equal sign, even though we might look at someone and admire them and think, they must be really spiritual because they've got it together. Her hair was perfect. She was shiny <laughs> and happy. She didn't cuss at all. I could tell she never had an angry thought in her head. No. That's, that's not normal. <laughs> not normal. <laughs> well, so in this passage, you see, Paul uses several more examples of idolatry. 
he talks about um, they, how they fell into idolatry as they worshipped the local gods. We're not going to look up all of these, but Exodus 32, um, 1 through 6, and he actually quotes verse 6 um, when he says, The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, which is a euphemism for what you can imagine it is. They, they, um, they it, with the bow of pure, they had worshipped him there, and then they, they, they were drunk, and they all started, you know, getting involved in sexual morality. And the judgment for that was swift and certain. Um, that led to judgment. Uh, several were slain, and there was a plague. And it's an interesting tie-in, that tie-in between sexual immorality and idolatry. They go hand in hand. And we see this also in um, Numbers 25, verses 1 through 9. Um, and we hear, again, this temple imagery of um, chapter 3 the, and the prohibition against prostitution in chapter 6. And we now see it, um, this prohibition against idolatry. It talks also about how they complained and were killed by snakes. And he talks about that in Numbers 21, 4 through 7. Or that's referring back to Numbers 21, 4 through 7. Um, they were grumbling against God and they were grumbling against Moses, the prophet of the Lord. And they distrusted God's goodness and provision. In Numbers 21, God sent a plague of snakes to, to get them for their grumbling. And... And some of them were saved, remember, by the bronze, by looking up at the bronze serpent that Moses raised up. So there's, but just this, the grumbling is so interesting. I feel more convicted of the grumbling um, than the sexual immorality and idolatry. I don't know about you, but it's almost like a leaky faucet coming out of my house. I find, do you find yourself ever just complaining? Nothing is the way it should be. And of course it's not the way it should be. That's this life. Um, but it's hard to walk around um, and not identify it, not talk about it, not worry that somehow God is not doing what he should simply because things are not all as they should be. Um, so the Israelites grumbled and distrusted God's goodness and provision, and they were punished for it. We see that also um, in Numbers chapter 14 and Numbers chapter 16. And so he's saying all of this to conclude that um, there are some Corinthians who are putting God to the test by going and worshiping in these temples of idols, by taking part in these pagan feasts. But there are also some who are um, tempted by that and tempted to fall into sin, those who are weak versus those who are strong. So Paul has switched in verse 12 from talking about those who are testing Christ, those who think they're knowledgeable, to those who are under a test, those who are weak. And he's saying, essentially, um, that they're both being tempted and, and also um, that the proud ones, the knowledgeable ones, are the ones who really do need to look out. How, how about that verse, verse 12? Um, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. What an injunction towards humility. Um, it's when I think I'm fine that I should really look out. Mm -hmm. It's that moment where I get up off my knees and I start doing things my way and taking things into my own hands that I really have to look out. I think pride is the most pernicious of sins, isn't it? It sneaks up on us. We see ourselves, maybe after the fact, doing it. Do you ever see yourself having done something and you think, ooh, after the fact, that was really proud. I mean, that was sinful in, uh, in the sense that it was or my pride led me to fall into this other sin. Um, it is just that root of sin, uh, most sins. Um, and so he's talking about, he goes from this taking heed, um, being aware that pride goes before a fall, uh, that when we think we're fine, we should actually really look out and be on guard because we're not even aware sometimes that we're being tempted. That's the most dangerous place of all. But this word on temptation that he leaves us with in, in verse 13 is so encouraging. There are two ways. God is faithful. And there are two ways in which Paul talks about God's faithfulness. He will not let us be tested beyond what we can bear. Um, meaning he will not um, give, um, allow there to be more that's tempting us um, than we can actually handle in him. He's not talking about handling it on our own. He's talking about handling it in him through prayer and through re relying upon him. 
And then the second thing is that um, he will provide a way out or an end to this testing and this temptation. And the knowledge that there will be an end to it is something that gives strength to the one being tested, isn't it? Um, I'm not necessarily looking forward to the end of this pregnancy, but I know once labor and delivery begins, I'll look forward to the end of it. I'll know that once the pains begin, I'll be glad for when the baby's on the out. <laughs> um, that there is, knowing that that's going to actually, right? Isn't that true? I don't know that experientially, but I, I understand that from watching on the sidelines. That there's only one way out of it, and the only way out of it is through it. But there will be an end to it, right? Mm-hmm. And that with this temptation... And you forget it. And you forget it. I know. The oh, body is you have a second one. <laughs> the, body, the body is an amazing thing. So God is faithful in the midst of temptation and trial. Um, he, he helps us realize that there will be an end in him to it. Okay, so moving on to verse 14. Um, excuse me, I, my watch broke, so you can blame <laughs> me going late on my watch. Um, we're going to get through it. Though. Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice They offer to the demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So we see that um, eating and drinking in worship context, whether pagan, Old Testament, or Christian, um, implies unity with the one worshipped vertically and then also horizontally among the worshippers. And so Paul makes use of the spiritual belief to argue that you can't do both. You can't participate both in the participation uh, in the koinonia, the fellowship of temple meals with a pagan God and also with um, worship of the one true God. It just can't happen. You cannot do both. And do you remember he used this same argument in chapter 6 to talk about participation, um, the body being one with Christ means you cannot join yourself to a prostitute. Remember when he was arguing against that kind of sexual immorality? He said, the temple, you are a temple of the living God. You can't also unite yourself with this other person. You can't do that. And he's talking about that, this here, that this um, participation, this verb that he, this word that he uses again and again, is the Greek word koinonia, which um, all the Christian fellowships in college are called koinonia fellowship or something like that. You know, there's always a koinonia fellowship. I remember, uh, maybe at Wheaton College, we had a lot of koinonia groups. But that word is a beautiful Greek word that means fellowship, and um, sometimes translated as participation and sometimes as fellowship. But it means this deep intimacy, deep communion vertically with God himself and we see it in the New Testament especially in koinonia fellowship with Jesus Christ and with the Holy Spirit vertically but then also as we're all in him among the body of Christians and that's why you know, whenever churches have a fellowship event I think a lot of people think well I mean that's not really church like church is really when you hear the word preached when you hear this, when you do this, and certainly we want to include that and have an amalgam so we can have both of those things. But without fellowship, without time spent just being together, the way people are good at being together, listening to each other, um, sharing food together, um, talking, uh, just uh, being side by side in the same place for, for long enough that we really get to know each other and we really become enmeshed in each other's lives. That's the image of the body of Christ that, um, that is the ideal. That's what we're going for. And that kind of fellowship um, exists theologically in theory because of our union in Christ. And it's the church's job to really facilitate it playing out among the body of Christ, among members of the church. 
So there are unity with church members because of union with Christ. Communion means union. And so therefore you cannot be unified with something that's diabolical. cannot be unified with a God that's not a God. Paul here in verse 20 takes that word that he used in chapter 8 verse 5, those so-called gods, and now he's saying, he's giving even more information. He says, not only are they not gods, but they're not nothing. They're not gods. They're not God, and they're not gods. They're actually demons. It's interesting because in the Greek, um, in the New Testament, the word demon, the word used for demons, one of the words, was a word that was used by, by all throughout Jewish literature to refer to the gods of the nations surrounding them. You know, like Apollos. Zeus and Artemis, they called them daimonions, demons. And um, essentially, it was a word in the Jewish mindset that was used for any kind of spiritual entity that was not God, um, because they only have this localized supernatural power that's really nothing in comparison with the God of the universe. And so because they're not God, they're not good, and focusing on them is not good. Um, and so this kind of focusing in on these idols, participating in the worship of these idols, is actually um, is actually demonic activity. And so he's urging them not to do that for that reason. Any thoughts about that? Is that startling to think about? That. Or even, and not even personhood that's worth acknowledging, yeah. but except that they can be used by the evil one yeah. for his purposes. And then, then it's like, well, I don't want it. This is why I'm very skittish about, thing, about Halloween. My parents did this with us as kids. We could not ever dress up as anything. We were never allowed to be witches, ghosts, or skeletons, or anything dark like that, because... Because they said, especially with ghosts, they said that's real and those aren't ghosts. Anything they kind of had this viewpoint, which a lot of charismatic Christians have from Scripture and from moments like this in Scripture that would say, there's something dark here, and where there's something dark, we're somehow fascinated by it, aren't we? Um, but actually, we need to flee that fascination. That fascination is not going to help us in any way, um, but um, but actually could be used by the evil one for his purpose. So it's kind of scary, right, to think about it that way and to think about, um, yeah, I did it, I brought up Halloween and kind of the darkness associated with that. Okay, any thoughts? Okay, we're going to finish up. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So we get here to the bottom line, finally, right, Mary? We're finally getting to the... He's gone back and forth and back and forth. But the bottom line of Paul's principle for their behavior is eat. You can eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, but not in the temples, not ever in the temple. But if you find it in the marketplace or you go to someone's house and they're serving you meat, it's don't ask. Don't ask, don't tell. Don't ask, don't tell. If you don't know for sure, I hate to say it, if you don't know for sure that it's meat sacrificed to idols, go for it. Looks tasty. Yum, yum. And go ahead and eat it. But if someone makes it obvious, oh, don't you know where I got this? Or 
oh, well, what about, did you, you know, I heard you're a Christian, are you okay with eating this meat? You know, say it's a non-Christian. I heard you're a Christian, are you okay with eating this meat that's been sacrificed to Apollos? Then you'd be like, actually, no, I'm not. Thank you for telling me. But, <laughs> darn it, it looks like a good steak. <laughs> but if it, or if it's a Christian who says, um, oh, you know, one of these weaker Christians, um, then you definitely don't want to eat it because then you'll cause them to stumble. So if you, you'll, um, your witness to Christ will be um, tainted if you eat it in front of non-Christians knowingly, and if you eat it in front of Christians knowingly, then also um, their your witness to them and your building up of the body of Christ will be tainted, and they will be their consciences, their weak consciences will leave them then either in the sake of non-Christians to syncretize, to say, well, I guess I'd love, I'd like to follow Jesus. If I can also follow Apollos, great. Let's just mash it up. It'll be a smorgasbord religion. Do you know people like that? I hear that a lot these days. Much more in the Northeast than here, but there is a little bit of Oprah, a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of um, this, a little bit of that, and you mash it together, and that's how you... Um, belief is you, you, you syncretize, you mash everything together. But no, so he's saying not that for those, he doesn't want that witness um, to be what people are seeing when they see Christians. And then also um, for those within the church, they should not be tempted to worship idols just because you who are strong are eating this meat with this knowledge that you have that it's nothing, that it's not going to hurt or bother you. So. I, no, I turn mine off and then I realize sometimes I turn it on too instead of turning it off. Um, so all this to say, they are meant to be constrained by love, not by a law. Why? So that many more may be saved. And so that the ones who have been saved would be strengthened in their own faith. Any thoughts or questions about this? It's long. Long three chapters to be on this one topic. Yeah. One thing, uh, when we were reading this verse, in the top, it brought back uh, that thought that, you know, God doesn't ever close a door without opening a window somewhere. Yeah, isn't that a good thought? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, providing the way yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, providing a way out. Yeah. Release. Really? Relief. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when we're under dire temptation, mm-hmm. whatever that might be. Um, finding, finding the way out and looking for the way out is really helpful. Trusting that He's given a way out. Um, with all of this, I find those few verses are often taken out of context. Isn't that interesting? And they deal with sort of, they can be applied almost more universally than the rest of this passage. But one question just to leave you with, thinking about this as, you, as we move on to a new topic next week. Can you actually think of an example in your life where morally neutral behavior, something that um, is not breaking one of God's laws, might actually harm someone else and therefore should be avoided? I tried to give you a couple examples before um, my cute outfits in, in college that I thought I certainly wasn't intending to provoke anyone. But well, listen to certain types of music, maybe. Sure. Yeah, I really like dance music. Like dance music that's like you should have been with me Friday night. It's really fun. But I I like. I'm not gonna say. 